Uh, it is good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Um, it will go quickly because it's poetry. Chapter 4, verse 1. How dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars and the work of potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of the thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who eat delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in their body than curls. They're polishing like lapis lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away being stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate woman boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. And so they fled and wandered. Men among the nations, they shall not continue dwell to dwell with us, they said. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. They did not honor the priests, nor did they favor the elders. Yet our eyes fail. Looking for help was useless. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. They hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, who dwells in the land of Luz. The cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer, but he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Eden. He will expose your sins. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read it, Father, it, it is a challenge to us first to comprehend it, to understand what is happening here. What are we reading? 
And the second, Lord, to see how it relates to us, separated by such time and distance. And yet we know, Father, that all scripture is given by inspiration, by your spirit, and that it is profitable for us. And so, Lord, we would pray that we might draw profit from today's reading, that we might draw profit from the meditation in it, and that as we consider our nation, as we consider our land, as we consider the wounds that our people have endured, that your spirit might speak to us of how to lament and how to come to you, Lord, when our foundations are destroyed. For, Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are the rock that does not move. You are a sure foundation, that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we pray, Father, that in this midst of sorrow, chaos, and confusion, we might return to that foundation and find it ever stable, established, and secure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 4,000 years ago, an Egyptian poet wrote the following. To whom do I speak today? Brothers are evil. Friends of today, they are not lovable. To whom do I speak today? Men are covetous. Everyone seizes his neighbor's goods. To whom do I speak today? Gentleness has perished. Insolence has come to all men. To whom do I speak today? He that has a contented face is bad. Good is disregarded in every place. To whom do I speak today? Faces are invisible. Every man has his face downcast against his brethren. To whom do I speak today? Hearts are covetous. The man on whom men rely has no heart. To whom do I speak today? There are none righteous. The earth is given over to workers of iniquity. To whom do I speak today? I am laden with misery and lack a trusty friend. To whom do I speak today? The sin that smites the land, it has no end. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. We read that poem. It's one of my uh, fav- most favorite poems um, uh, that I discovered years ago in studying ancient Egypt. And it just speaks to the universal nature of our condition. That 4,000 years ago, an Egyptian poet could sit by the banks of the Nile River and lament the sin that he saw around him, that he could lament the destruction of the social, cultural, and political framework upon which civilization rested, that he could speak of the man on whom men rely, the Pharaoh, and decry the fact that he has no heart, no concern, no compassion for his people. And what it reminds me of is what we've been studying all along, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And can we not agree with this ancient poet that the sin that smites the land, it has no end. And as we've been looking at Lamentations, as we've been studying Lamentations, 
We have seen it as a, a as a funeral lament for the city of God, that God is speaking through the pain of the prophet and giving voice to that range of emotion that suffering produces. That here in this book of Lamentations, we find the most extreme suffering imaginable, massacre and rape, cannibalism, and the destruction of social order. And we are reminded that to cry is human, to cry is human, that these are not unique sufferings, that the city of Jerusalem was not a unique city to suffer such woe in ancient times, that throughout history, there have been periods of destruction where one kingdom or empire would sweep across another. When the Mongols swept through the Middle East, they destroyed nine tenths of every living soul, that the city of Baghdad was laid waste and barely 10% of its population survived the onslaught of the Mongol horde. This is not a new suffering. This is not a new situation. And throughout history, human beings have lamented, have cried, have sought answers to their suffering. But what we find here in Lamentations is a different perspective, where to cry is human, but to lament, to truly lament, is Christian. Because we recognize, as we see in Lamentations 1 and 2, that sin is the source of all suffering. That sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We've also seen that it is the sovereign God who works in history, accomplishing his purposes, even purposes of suffering, calamity, and death. But we also saw that there is a savior who suffers alongside the chastened. That when Jeremiah penned these words, there was no cross, there was no empty tomb, that there was no, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, uttered from the cross, where the one who was the creator, the perfect and holy one, the sinless son of God, would take on flesh and step into our humanity and by doing so, identify himself with our suffering, with the mess we've created, that he would walk the dusty streets of Palestine, being touched by leper and blind person alike, by experiencing life as we live it, knowing hunger, thirst, loneliness, abandonment, betrayal, and then go to the cross where he would embrace that and become the sin bearer, that he would be judged by God as guilty before God for the sins of the human race. The very things that have caused our alienation, our suffering, and our sorrow, he took upon himself that he would have the title Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God to claim, ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the gospel. This is, we hear that voice in the prophet's words in Lamentations chapter 1, where he says, Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there are any pain, or any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. We just spent some time meditating on that suffering, meditating on the riches of his mercy, meditating on the riches of his grace. Well, where is the fount from which those riches flow? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It was there that he suffered and bled and died for you, for me, for every man, woman who's ever lived from Adam to the last person who will walk the face of the earth. We came to chapter three last week and we saw that this chapter is the pinnacle point. This is the summit of the book, <clears throat> that it is the longest chapter. And in the center of the chapter, we find the secret of the book for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. That when we look at the suffering, when we look at the heartache, we look at the horror that is our world at times, we must know that God takes no pleasure in this situation. As the prophet Ezekiel would say, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not afflict willingly. And yet he does. And we come to chapter four, and now we begin to go down, the, as it were, the other side of the mountain. We are on the other side of the mountain, and we are beginning the descent. And what chapter four highlights for us is the scope of this destruction. And what is important to note, as I've said before, if you study Lamentations, pay attention to the personal pronouns. Pay attention to the voice who is speaking. In chapter three, over and over again, we see the personal pronoun I. We see the personal pronoun my. We see the personal pronoun me. We see him talking about this personal experience that he is going through. The sorrow as it begins, I am a man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath. When we come to chapter four, the focus shifts outward. And it's a gaze upon the destruction of the very foundations of Jewish society. It is examining the breadth of the destruction that his wrath has accomplished. And how he has kindled the fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. And as the psalmist writes, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so chapter four begins with how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. Everything has lost its value. And what we see at the very beginning of chapter four is the destruction of economic foundations. Is destruction of economic foundations. It's a tarnished treasure, a corrupted coin. The power of money has been undone in this society, and they are facing a complete and total economic collapse. 2020 has been quite a year to lament economic loss. There has been much to lament regarding the financial situation in our nation. Many of us know people who have personally lost their jobs or who have seen their businesses, sometimes lifelong investments, shrivel up and die under the lockdowns. And if that is not worse, what is what we what are we doing in to solve this economic woe, but borrowing against our future? mortgaging our children's and grandchildren's future. To try to solve the problems of today, we've kicked the can down the road, but boy, what a can it is. Economic distress, economic hardship, and the hearts of many 
have been broken. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And for those who have seen the destruction of everything they've lived for, we, we, we have not talked about, and the press has not talked about, the deaths of despair that have increased dramatically over the last six months or a year. The deaths of despair related to alcoholism and drug, drug overdose and suicide because the pure gold has changed and how dark the gold has become. In ancient Israel, in ancient Jerusalem, the city's economic structure had totally collapsed. But it wasn't just economic. There is a a social, cultural foundation. The civilization, all civilizations are built upon the family. All civilizations are built upon the institution of the family. And this is like a universal truth. And when we look at this passage, what do we find here? We find that sons are no longer valued. Where they were once weighed against fine gold, now they're regarded as earthen jars. Where the daughters have become cruel like ostriches. Where the people have lost natural affection. Where the tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth because of its thirst. And no one breaks bread for the children. There is a complete undoing of the social and cultural foundation of society. Perhaps the most egregious example is verse 10, where the prophet laments cannibalism, where he has seen women consuming their own children. They became food for them. A loss of decency, a loss of compassion, a loss of natural affection. A lament over the breakdown of society. Yesterday was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It's not an anniversary that I typically mark. It's not one that I pay much attention to. But for some reason this year, it it just struck me that since 1973, there have been 61 million abortions in our country. 61 million abortions. Now, whatever nuance you might have over the issue of right to life versus pro-choice, there can be nothing said about this that other than that is a tragedy. That whatever circumstances would lead a person, a mother, to abandon her natural role, her God-given role as a mother, and turn what was supposed to be the safest place in the universe into a charnel house can be nothing but a tragedy. 
and an egregious offense to a holy God. The destruction of the social and cultural norms of our society are ever, everywhere around us. We're reminded almost daily that if one holds to a traditional view of marriage, that, that that's just not, you know, that's not just another point of view anymore. It's striking to me how in our society we've gone from a point where back in the 1980s, where it was discussed about looking at homosexuality as an alternative alternative lifestyle. And moving from that point to where you accept that proposition to where now traditional marriage is looked at as an alternative lifestyle, where now those who would advocate for a traditional marriage are no longer tolerated. That if you actually were to say, I believe that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, one man, one woman for life, that you would be labeled in very disrespectful terms. The loss of social and cultural norms. We are facing much the lament. But not only do we find in chapter 4 the loss and the destruction of the economic foundation, the social cultural foundation, but we find also the very religious foundations of society have been destroyed. In verses 12 and 13, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God is holy mountain, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. How could the kings of the earth ever enter Jerusalem when it's God's city? How could they ever take this place? Because it's God's people. But what do we find here? The priests and the prophets and the elders cry out, depart. We're unclean. Depart. Do not touch. Depart. They cried of themselves. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. And so the very religious foundations of the Jewish society crumbled underneath them. Not only was it an economic problem, not only was it a social and cultural problem, but it was a religious problem. The people had departed from their faith and there was an undoing of the religious institutions, religious traditions and religious locations. The religious leaders had fallen. They themselves had become unclean. It's almost cliche now to read about the next evangelical leader who has been exposed for some sexual misconduct or abuse of power or sexual harassment 
or sexual exploitation. It's almost like you can't, you know, you pick a leader and you say, what about, and you say to yourself, and this goes from whether you're talking about like a national leader or whether you're talking about the local pastor down the street. And of course, we understand what that what that means, right? We know the harm that Satan is able to do, where the greatest apologist of the 20th century now becomes labeled the greatest fraud of the 20th century. When when a local pastor upon whom a church has been rallied and built upon, a man who had a vision to lead a congregation, and in his own words, he said to me, I, I just see myself being a pastor for the rest of my life and shepherding this congregation, has to be removed from office for infidelity and an affair that lasted for years. There is much to lament. And then we come, it's not just economic, it's not just social and cultural, it's not just religious, but the last bastion of law and order, the political institution, verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. You see the power of what he's saying there? The king, he was our breath. He gives us life and protection, the king did of what the gospel teaches, what Jesus teaches us. To pray for those who are enemies. Why? Because their fate is far worse than anything we would suffer. As I have said before, and I I believe this with my heart, that whatever trouble we go through, whatever sorrow we might experience in this life, whatever hardship, whatever grief, whatever loss we experience, if you're born again, if you have Jesus as your Savior, if you know Christ as the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead and you are trusting in him, that is as close to hell as you will ever get. But if you do not know Christ as your Savior, every sunrise, every sunset that you've ever experienced, every moment of laughter and joy and mirth that you experience, that's as close to heaven as you'll ever get. The guilty will not go unpunished, but the cup will come around. The second thing that we can see here is that all the things that are listed in chapter four are the things that we are so tempted to make idols of. We make idols of our economic resources. We make idols of our social and cultural institutions, whether they be family, whether they be education, whether they be uh, recreational. These things, religious leaders, we, uh, we're a celebrity culture and we love our celebrities, even as Christians. We put our hope in princes, our presidents, our Congress, our governors. These become idols in our lives. And what does God do is he smashes the idols when they disappoint us, when they frustrate us when they abandon us and we realize our trust should never have been in them in the first place. And the third thing is that we lament the suffering and the sorrow. Because what chapter four does is it moves us from the personal experience of grief 
and the afflictions that we feel to recognizing that we're part of a community, we're part of a nation, we're part of a people, whether that be as the people of God or as Americans, the reality is, is that we're connected socially, culturally, we are connected and therefore our grief needs to be more than just personal. This week, I read a poem and the poem was so profound. It said one of the lines, it was repeated over and over again. You have placed a reservoir in my heart that my tears may come from another place. You have placed a reservoir in my heart that my tears may come from another place. See, because within my own heart, my heart is very small and it's so small. The only room it has are for my own tears for my own sorrows, for my own griefs, for my own losses. But God wants to put in each one of us a reservoir where the tears that he sheds for a lost and suffering world may find a home. That the tears that others shed because of their sorrows and losses and griefs can be borne by us. That we might learn truly to weep with those who weep. A reservoir. To lament the economic suffering of the unemployed, the impoverished, the homeless. To lament the social and cultural suffering of broken families and divorced homes, of crises and identities and AIDS and racism and gender confusion, homosexuality and deaths from COVID and abortion. To lament the religious failures of others and to look at our fallen leaders, not with judgment, but with compassion. To lament our dependence on on celebrities and their power over us. To lament for our nation and its wayward path, for our leaders, for those who are on and those who are corrupt to learn how to truly lament as the people of God. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We can lament, but remember, lament is always a turning to God. Lament always means that I give voice to that which I am feeling, but I do so in faith, believing and remembering the promise. As the psalmist says, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. And to remember the promise, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The churches one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this word that you've given us. It's a hard word, Lord. And we consider there's so much to really weep over, Lord. But we shut ourselves off and we close ourselves in and We harden our hearts to the suffering of those around us, and we just want to go on our merry way, Lord. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be harassed. And yet when trouble comes and it strikes us, when when the world turns upside down, when disaster or calamity brings its misfortune into our experience, then we cry out to you, God, oh, I am one who has seen affliction, but Lord, we are part of a body of Christ 
We are a part of a community, part of a nation. You told your people to pray for the peace of the city, for the prosperity of the city. We pray, oh God, that we might learn from this, that, that there is much to lament beyond our own experience. And I do pray, God, that you might give us a reservoir of tears. A reservoir to collect those tears. That we might show people the one who cries by the tomb of a friend. The one who weeps over Jerusalem. The one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who rose triumphant from the dead and bids us come. We pray this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.